are focusing on prayer and asking uh, what the disciples asked of Jesus many, many years ago. Lord, teach us how to pray. And we're asking God, Lord, teach us how to pray. Show us how to pray like we've never prayed before. And in doing that, we're, we're, we're looking at that model prayer, the disciples' prayer, oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer, as is recorded in Luke's Gospel, but we're looking in Matthew chapter 6 where it's recorded, as we're just kind of walking through the different parts of this petition and just asking God, Lord, help us to understand uh, what it is that you, you are trying to communicate to us, and then out of that, to know how to make that a part of our prayer. And we come to the petition this morning uh, that, again, may be familiar to you. Uh, maybe you learned it one way or the other. Uh, Matthew's gospel records it this way, uh, that we, are, we ask God to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, as we've also forgiven our debtors. Now, that means perhaps a little something different in our culture than others. See, we are, we are a nation of debtors, are we not? I mean, we, we have uh, mortgage debt, we have consumer debt, whether that's a car load or credit card payments. Actually, uh, there are many couples, uh, some of you perhaps, that are starting off life uh, with hundreds of thousands of, of student loan debt. It's become almost a national crisis for us. I just saw uh, this, uh, this week that I think our federal uh, debt now has, I think, crossed the $22 trillion threshold. So we have this incredible uh, indebtedness uh, even as a nation. Uh, but with all of that, we tend to think of debt maybe as an annoyance, uh, maybe as a burden, maybe as something we kind of have to deal with, but it's just kind of part of life. But in the culture in which Jesus was teaching, debt was handled a little bit differently. You see, oftentimes if you owed a debt, you were unable to pay or unwilling to pay, at least in a timely manner, you could be, would be thrown into prison. Now, we tend to think, uh, well, you get thrown in prison when you commit this crime. They had other ways of dealing with crime, right? There was crucifixion. There were other forms of punishment. But prisons oftentimes were about someone who was in debt. Now, it's not the only reason, but it was one of the reasons somebody was placed into prison. And part of the thinking, because you think, what's up with that? I mean, if you're in prison, it's not like you're working and can, you can pay off your, your debt. But part of it was to put pressure on the family, for the family to kind of come up with the money to help set this person free from their imprisonment. So when Jesus chose the words debt and debtor, he was not talking about a trifling thing, but he was talking about something that they would have understood to be serious, that which could certainly radically change your life. And when he gave us this particular petition, he also is talking to us about our most urgent spiritual need, my ongoing need, your ongoing need for forgiveness, to be forgiven by God. And as we look at this petition, I think it's a good time to revisit kind of just the whole foundation of this prayer, because this petition in particular reminds us the whole prayer, this whole model prayer is built upon the bedrock. It's built upon the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, that is the foundation upon which the prayer grows out of. And so just to remind us uh, kind of 
revisit that foundation. Let's remind ourselves of, of the basics of the gospel, uh, that we have a God who loved us, a God who created us for relationship with him now and forever. And yet the scripture tells a story beginning in Genesis and throughout that Paul sums up with the words, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That every one of us in ways large and small, intentional, perhaps unintentional, by, by nature and by choice, have chosen uh, the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God. And we've chosen self-rule over following his rule. We, we've chosen our way over his way. And we've chosen our glory over his glory. And because of that, it has caused this rift, this, this separation from God. God's intended purpose for us and our relationship with God. The sin has separated us from God now and for all eternity. And yet God in his love intervened. He intervened in sending Jesus Christ to, to give to us a gift. Paul goes on to say, and are justified by his gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, he gets even more specific about it. He says, for your sake or for our sake, you and I, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That he took Jesus, and he took Jesus with, with no sin, Jesus who came and, and lived perfect love, perfect obedience to the Father, living in accordance with the Father's rightful rule and reign, and out of a heart of love obeyed everything. And yet upon him, he who knew no sin, he put our sin, he placed uh, the, the judgment of our sin upon him, upon the cross. He was crucified, he was dead, and he was buried. He was resurrected so that he could offer to us something we could have never repaid, never gained on our own, a gift to the offer. And that is that we might become the righteousness of God. We might be in a right relationship with God. Our, our debt could be eliminated. It could be paid off by another and that becomes activated in my life and yours through faith. And to the one who does not work, there's no way I can work off my debt, does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is when I, I trust in what he did for me that I couldn't do for myself that I begin to be reconnected to God, that barrier, that debt has been eliminated, and I am once again reunited to him. John, another of Jesus' disciples, put it this way. He said, but all who did receive him, to all who received this gift, he believed in his name, he gave the right. It's not our default position. He gave the right to become children of God. Now, I go back to this because this is the foundation for the prayer. So he begins to tell us, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father, Abba, Father. Who has the right to call out to the Holy God as Abba, Father? Only those who have become his children. Only those who have opened their life up to receive the debt payment that he made on our behalf through Jesus Christ. So when we come to the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, the model prayer, whatever label you want to put upon it. This model prayer is what Jesus taught to his disciples. It's not a generic prayer for everybody. 
It is for his disciples, children of God. It's intended for those who are genuinely a part of God's forever family by grace through faith. And I take us back because that helps us to understand the foundation for the prayer, but also the foundation for this particular request. There's an old hymn, uh, maybe some of you uh, sang it uh, somewhere along your, your growing up years or something, uh, the Rock of Ages, and part of that hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It is a recognition that there's nothing I could do to cover my debt, but that one intervened for me. One stepped in to pay the debt that I owed so that my sin could be forgiven and my relationship with God restored. And so I say to you at the beginning of our time this morning, our hope and prayer for you is not, not just that you would learn to pray, but that you would have the privilege of prayer because you have become a child of God, and because you have opened your life up through repentance and through faith. And so that sets the stage for everything else we're going to talk about around this petition. If you're here today and, and you say, you know, Jeff, I, I, I'm not sure that foundation's in place in my life. And maybe you've been religious, maybe you haven't been religious. But you say, I'm not sure. Then here's my, my plea to you. Don't walk out of this room today without talking to somebody about it. That's why we have that next steps area. That's why there's people there every single week just to be available to talk with you, uh, to, to go a little more deeper, to answer some questions along the way. We want you to know the hope that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that foundation, he's given us all these petitions, including this one about our debts, to forgive us our debts. Now, please understand there's two aspects, and this helps us to understand off the gospel foundation, this particular petition. Two aspects of God's forgiveness. The first aspect is what we've just been talking about, and we'll call that the judicial aspect, the judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is I stand guilty before a holy God. I have this debt I absolutely cannot pay. The only way for it to be addressed is for someone else to pay my debt, and that someone else is Jesus Christ. So that now I have been declared not guilty. I have been set free. I am no longer under the, the wrath of a righteous, holy God. I am no longer going to receive the justice that my sin deserves because it has been poured out fully on Jesus Christ. So I am now standing legally forgiven, if you will. So that's judicial forgiveness. But that's not primarily what this petition is talking about. This petition is talking about the second aspect of God's forgiveness, built on that gospel foundation of judicial forgiveness, and that is parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness. This is the forgiveness between a parent and a child, between our heavenly father and one of his children. So again, if we return uh, to John, John wrote a letter, 1 John. He was writing to Christians. He was writing to disciples, children of God, followers of Jesus Christ. And he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Yes, I stand forgiven. Yes, I am a child of God. 
Uh, but I still live in this not yet fully redeemed flesh. I still live uh, with this propensity, uh, this habitual sin in my life that I'm combating against. If I say I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself, and the truth is not in us. But he has this cleansing. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That this is an invitation to experience this parental forgiveness. So let me clarify. Uh, For a true follower of Jesus Christ, our sin does not cause us to lose our relationship. All right? This is not, I'm jumping in and out of salvation. But it does impede our fellowship. So that even as a parent, if, I, if a child does something wrong, if they lie or whatever it does, it doesn't mean that you cease to love that child. It doesn't mean that child is no longer yours, but it does something to your relationship, doesn't it? It creates a barrier. It impedes kind of the full expression of that relationship. And that's what sin does as a child of God before our Heavenly Father. It doesn't remove the relationship, but it does impede our fellowship. Now, this petition to come before him as as he makes us aware of sin in our life to to say, to cleanse, ought to encourage us. It really ought to encourage us. See, this petition reminds us of several things. It reminds us, first of all, that we need ongoing forgiveness. I didn't just need forgiveness back there, but I need forgiveness on an ongoing basis because I I still struggle in my flesh. I still struggle in this world with the reality of sin. And And I need ongoing forgiveness to not impede my fellowship with my heavenly Father. But the encouragement is that there's hope for forgiveness. That the same provision of Jesus Christ for my sin judicially is that which has made provision for me parentally, for my parental forgiveness, and that we have a God who is willing to forgive. Now, all of that, just think about that. I mean, if that wasn't true, Jesus wouldn't have given us this petition, right? But he says that he, there is a hope for forgiveness because we have a God who has come to great lengths saying, I'm willing to forgive. But go back to that verse, if we confess our sins, in order to experience this relational cleansing, this relational forgiveness, there needs to be a confession. Confession at its root means to say the same thing, to speak the same way, to agree with. That that it is seeing sin the way God sees it. It's agreeing with God of what it is, dishonoring to him, destructive to myself, and hurtful to other people, so that I begin to see it the same way. Confession is not like a lot of us did when we were little kids, right? Right? You remember? Yeah, maybe you had like a, you went kind of head to head with your spouse a little, your spouse, I mean your, your siblings, and, and your parents got you, they say, tell them you're sorry. And you went, sorry. <laughs> oh, that was sincere, right? <laughs> yeah, you really meant that, right? Some people, that's their idea of confession. I just say, sorry. But there's not like anything in my heart that shifted, right? 
That's not what the Bible means when it means confess. That I speak the same way about it. I see it the same way that God sees it. I I begin to feel about it the way that God feels about it. And so genuine confession, genuine confession that unleashes, that helps me to experience this parental forgiveness and cleansing includes several things. It includes repentance, not just regret. Repentance and not just regret. Repentance uh, can be described as a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Uh, That it's not just saying I'm sorry. It's not just uh, being being sorry that I got called or sorry for some of the consequences that I'm experiencing. But it's genuinely seeing it as God sees it and desiring to turn from it. Change of mind that leads to a change of direction. You see, the Bible distinguishes between kind of godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief just says, sorry, I got caught. I regret the consequences I'm experiencing. But a godly sorrow sees it for what it is, begins to see it the way that God sees it, and desires to turn away from it. That that's what leads to cleansing. That what leads to power to walk in a new way. The other just leaves us with regret. Repentance leads to cleansing. But I think genuine repentance is also specific and not just general. It's specific and not just general. Sometimes, sometimes when we come to the confession of sin, and, and maybe I understand it when we're in a group, and maybe we don't know who's listening or what the trust level is, but sometimes we'll say things like, Father, forgive us of all of our sins. Or some of us will go really radical, right? Forgive us of all of our sins, including those of omission and commission, right? Wow. <laughs> Listen, I don't know about you, but if, if you had to go in for surgery to the doctor, wouldn't you want them to be a little more specific? I mean, wouldn't you want them to know where they're cutting? <laughs> right? Not just to say, hey, let's go in for surgery today. Uh, where do you think I'll be able to, hey, I haven't done a gallbladder in a while. Let's do that today, right? No, 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 no. The issue's the heart, right? Or if it's an orthopedic, uh, if the issue is the knee, stay away from the elbow, Right? I mean, let's deal with what needs to be dealt with. In the same way, when we come to this experience, this parental forgiveness, oh, that we, we come, and maybe it just starts, God, search me. Just shine the light of your spirit. Or as you're just reading the word, and, and God has a way, I don't, he does it to me all the time. Just bang, right? This is you, this is what you did yesterday. And that's not God trying to beat you up. That's God trying to build you up by identifying those things that are getting in the way. Inviting you to turn from lesser things so that you can turn to his best for your life. But that's only going to happen when you are willing to get specific and not just stay at this kind of general level. What specifically, God, do I need to turn from today? 
And you don't have to like beat yourself up and like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm gonna sit here for three hours until I can think of something, you know. <laughs> God, God will get your attention. He will if you're open, all right? Specific, not just general, but also genuine confession, I, I think flows out of adoration. It flows out of adoration, an adoration for the greatness of God. Did you notice that when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't start here. He started with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that there is this recognition of the, of the greatness of God, of that genuine confession flows best out of genuine adoration for who God is and for what he has done. Stephen Charnock put it this way, a legalistic conviction of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice, but godly repent, repentance flows chiefly from a sense of God's love. That we, yes, there is the justice of God, but we have been judicially forgiven if we are in Christ. But now it's out of this, this sense of God's holiness, but also God's love, that I realize that when I sin, it's not I just broke a rule, but I broke his heart. It's not that I just disobeyed and rebelled against the law, but I rebelled against his love. And it is that love that intervened for me that, that calls me back to him. But it's also that which will empower me to continue to walk away from sin in the future. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was preaching years ago now at a college. He was teaching there and a, and a young professor came up to him afterwards and he said, I, I just really want to talk with you. And they, they, they went off to the side and, and he began to kind of pour out his story that, that, that he had lived a life before he came to Christ quite rebellious and there were just some some things in his life that he was just totally ashamed of and he was had now become a follower of Christ he met this fine christian woman and and they hoped to get married but he was kind of he was afraid he was afraid to tell her about some of the things in his past and he was afraid that she would reject him or all of this and and so Dr. Barnhouse listened and and he kind of asked a few questions, and he, he kind of felt assured that this, this guy was genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ. And he encouraged him, listen, if you're going to build this relationship, it has to be built on truth. And that means you have to go into every gory detail, but, uh, but you know, you, you, need to, you need to be truthful. You can't start your relationship with this kind of wall of lies, right? And then he went on and told him a story. Here's the story that he told. Let me just share it with you. Dr. Barnhouse then began to tell a story of two other people who had found themselves in a similar set of circumstances. The man had lived a life of great sin, but he had been converted and eventually had come to marry a fine Christian woman. And he confided to her the nature of his past life in a few words. And as he told her these things, his wife had taken his head in her hands, and she had drawn him close to her shoulder. And as she kissed his head in her hands, she said, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and therefore I know the subtlety of sin and the devices of sin working in the human heart. 
I know you are thoroughly converted man, John, but I know that you still have an old nature and that you're not yet as fully instructed in the ways of God as you soon will be. And I know that the devil will do all that he can to wreck your Christian life. And he will see to it that temptation of every kind will be put in your way. And the day might come, please God, that it never shall, when you will succumb to temptation and fall into sin. Immediately the devil will tell you that it's no use trying that you might as well continue in the way of sin and that uh, above all that, you're not to tell me because it'll hurt me. But John, I want you to know that here in my arms is your home. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new nature. And I want you to know that there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may ever come into your life. As Dr. Barnhouse was telling this story to this college professor, this young man lifted up his eyes and he just kind of said with a sense of awe, my God, my God, if anything could ever keep a man straight, that would be it. (laughs) To know that you are loved that much. It doesn't become an impetus to continue to sin that grace may abound. But it becomes this motivation that when I blow it, I can come clean. But it becomes this motivation, it becomes this empowerment to live as one who is adored by this holy and just God, my Father. It is based and flows best out of adoration. Forgive us our debts. And then flows the second part of this petition, the call to forgive. Forgive us our debts. And then he goes on, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now let's make sure we understand what this is not saying, first of all. It's not saying that we earn forgiveness by forgiving others, right? Sometimes people can can read this. We've already dealt with our stuff on the front end. Forgive us our debts. It's not about if I forgive others, then you'll forgive me because I will have earned your forgiveness. No, what he's saying here is that experiencing God's forgiveness transforms us. It transforms us into forgiving people. The more we understand the magnitude of the debt that we owed God and the forgiveness that he extended to us, it transforms our hearts. Out of that adoration, we become forgiving people. What this petition reminds us of is that forgiving others is not the way we earn salvation. It's evidence of us having received God's forgiveness. Those who truly know they are forgiven tend to be forgiving. Those who still kind of have some sort of works righteousness that somehow God is lucky to have us on their team tend to be legalistic, tend to be judgmental, tend to be less forgiving toward other people. Forgiving others is evidence of us having received God's forgiveness. But that raises the question then, well, what is forgiveness? 
And I've taught on some of these things when we looked last October at some of the parables of Jesus in Matthew 18 and and a wonderful parable about uh, debtors there. But let me just remind you of a couple things. And sometimes the best way to get to what something is is to eliminate some things that it is not. Forgiveness is not denying the seriousness or the pain of the offense. And sometimes we hesitate to forgive because we say, it hurt, it was, it was difficult, it was painful, it, 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 it doesn't deserve to be excused. And if I forgive, it's almost like saying it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. Forgiveness is actually the only thing that says it does matter. Just blowing it off acts like it doesn't matter. But forgiveness says, this hurt, this was offensive, this was painful, this was wrong. I don't deny that at all. But forgiveness is also not the same as reconciliation. And sometimes we, we, we're even a little fearful or hesitant. If I forgive, that means we're going to be reconciled. Not necessarily. We've taught it this way before. Forgiveness depends upon me, but reconciliation depends upon we. That there has to be this response, there has to be this repentance, there has to be this confession, there has to be this change of direction if there is going to be genuine reconciliation because reconciliation requires something on the part of both parties. Forgiveness is also not the same as rebuilding trust. Again, I've seen a lot of folks uh, that get beat up over this or try to beat up somebody else over this. Well, if you had really forgiven me, you would now trust me. Not necessarily. Forgiveness is about the past. Trust is about the future. Trust is earned. Trust is deserved. Trust can be broken in a moment, but it may take weeks and months and years to rebuild. Trust is about the behavior of the future. I can forgive, and we'll talk about what that is in just a moment. I can forgive, but that doesn't mean I trust you necessarily going forward. Because your track record hasn't indicated a trustworthiness. All right? So I'm messing with some of you already this morning, right? Forgiveness is also not the same as forgetting. Again, I've seen so many folks get so knotted up here. I must not have forgiven because I still remember what they did. I still remember what they said. You will. Because that's how God designed the human brain. Particularly if it's something very painful or very traumatic, that doesn't disappear in a moment just because you've forgiven And what I try to say to folks is, it won't always be on the forefront of your mind, okay? But as it comes back to the surface of your mind, and that may be the moment you have to choose again to forgive, to choose again to release that debt. I hope this is gonna be freeing to somebody this morning. Forgiving doesn't mean that suddenly you forget, you don't remember. No, you, you remember, particularly some of those painful things. It's just that you're no longer going to keep it in the forefront of your mind. You're no longer going to get it to control you from this point forward. So if all of those things are not forgiveness, well, what is forgiveness? Well, let me give you, a, I know it's a little clunky, but stick with me. Forgiveness is choosing. It's choosing to release our offender 
from the obligation for repayment that was created by their offense. They did something or they failed to do something and that created a debt. That created something that they owe. But we, we say, I, I'm not gonna get repaid. I'm not gonna look for that repayment and I'm gonna kind of absorb that loss myself and I'm gonna entrust myself to God, right? Because think about it. For a lot of things that happen to us in life, what could somebody actually do that would repay? Right? I mean, what could they do? For some people in your life, they're not even living anymore. What are they going to do that's going to repay that debt? For far too many people, you experience things as a child from an adult that no child should ever have to experience. What could they ever do to make that right? What could they ever do to repay that? You just release them. You no longer hold out a hope for repayment. You are going to absorb that loss. And you're going to entrust yourself to God. Because Peter said that's what Jesus did. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's not saying it's okay what they did. It's not saying it didn't hurt. It doesn't say I have to trust them going forward. It just says I'm giving up debt collection. <laughs> I'm releasing it to God. In fact, is the Greek word translated forgive, afimi, translated means to let go, to send off. I, I let go of this, this sense that I'm going to somehow be repaid. Henry Cloud put it this way, to forgive someone means to let him off the hook, to cancel a debt he owes you. When you refuse to forgive someone, you still want something from that person, Right? even if it's revenge that you want. But here's the thing. It keeps you tied to him or to her forever. As long as you still want to collect the debt, you are tied to them forever. So when I taught on that parable in October, I gave you this line. Forgiveness sets a prisoner free only to discover that the prisoner was me. We think by holding this grudge, we think by holding on to the bitterness, we, we think that by seeking revenge that somehow I'm getting them. Only to discover that the person who was actually imprisoned was me. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, and yet I think the word choice is significant. 
Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. See, I can release a debtor. They are indebted to me because of what they did or what they did not do. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life waiting for that repayment. I release the debtor. But I can't forgive fully the debt. The debt that they owe to a righteous, holy God. Only God is qualified to be the judge. Only God is fully qualified to deal with sin. And so, here, here, because some of us, some of us, I, I hesitate to forgive them because they haven't shown anything like they have any relationship with God. I release the debtor. And I, I'm not going to expect any repayment from them. I entrust myself to God. And I entrust the righteous God to deal with their debt, either in perfect justice or as he's dealt with mine as a child of his in perfect grace and mercy. But I entrust the debt to him. See, when we think about forgiveness, sometimes we think obligation, think heavy, but I want to reframe it this morning. Forgiveness, excuse me, forgiveness is one more gift. It is one more gift from a gracious God that allows us to be able to function in relationships with real people in a real world. Because in a real world where there's sin, in a real world where we struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil, we hurt each other, we wound each other, we we get things, we're treated unfairly and life is not fair. And if we are going to function in that kind of world, we not only have to be forgiven, but we need God's empowerment to forgive others. Forgiveness is one more gift from our gracious God that allows us to function in the world as it really, really is. When Tim Keller was writing about prayer, one of the things he said is prayer is a healing process. It's a healing process in which the heart is brought back into its true orbit That is to center on worship and glorify God. That's what this petition does. When I say, Father, forgive me. I am returning to my true orbit. I am experiencing his cleansing, his parental forgiveness, and I'm returning to that true orbit where I can center on and worship and glorify God. When I forgive others, I am releasing that bitterness. I am releasing that which ties me to them so that I can return to my true orbit to center on and worship and glorify God. Prayer. It's a healing process. It's a gift from God 
to return us to the life that he intended for us to live, to be the people that he created us to be, centered on worshiping and glorifying him. Richard Wormbrun was a Romanian who became a follower of Christ. And he did so in the midst of communist Romania. And because he saw what was happening, he spoke out against it and he was arrested repeatedly. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. His life was threatened. His family, on and on it goes. He would go on and found the, the group, the, the, the Voice of the Martyrs, and wrote several books, including Tortured for Christ. But Wormran wrote of one of his experiences in prison and the forgiveness that he saw. On his, in his cot on his right was a pastor who had been beaten so badly that he was about to die. On his left was the very man who had beaten him, a communist who was later betrayed and tortured by his comrades and thrown into that same prison. One night, the communist awakened in the middle of a nightmare, and he cried out, Please, pastor, say a prayer for me. I've committed such crimes. I cannot die. And the pastor set up feebly, but because his body had been so beaten, so deprived for so long, he had to call another prisoner to help him make his way across the room. And he went by Wormbrand's cot, he made it to the cot of his former tormentor. And as he sat on the bedside, Wormerin said he turned and he watched as his pastor began to caress the hair of the man who had tortured him. And then he spoke these amazing words. I have forgiven you with all of my heart, and I love you. If I, who am only a sinner, can love and forgive you, more so can Jesus, who is the Son of God and who is love incarnate. Return to him. He longs for you much more than you long for him. He wishes to forgive you much more than you wish to be forgiven, but you must repent. There in the prison cell, the communist torturer began to confess all of his murders and his tortures. And when he had finished, the two prayed together and embraced. And with the help of another prisoner, the pastor returned to his bed where they each died before the night was done. Forgiveness is not cheap. It isn't saying that it didn't matter. But it is the only way to return to our true orbit, to be healed, to recenter our life on the God who is worthy of worship and glory and praise. Forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. Would you join me in prayer, please? Oh, Father, we need healing. We need the healing that only you can provide through the provision of Jesus Christ. And Father, you know every story in this room. You know our past. You know that which we struggle with in the present. You even know that which is coming in the future. And so, Father, we cry out to you because you have given us this incredible, gracious gift of prayer. Part of the incredible gift of being able to be a child of yours despite our sin because of all that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we pray today, we pray, and Lord, we pray for our one, that one person that you have placed on our heart that it may be close to us, but they're far from you. Father, would you draw them with your great, great love, with your power, with, with a sense of your holiness and yet the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, would you draw them today to a saving knowledge of you? Father, for some right here, right now in this room, would you draw them to the forgiveness that only Christ can provide? And then, Father, I, I pray for those of us who name the name of Christ Jesus, to whom much has been forgiven. Lord, would you teach us to forgive? Not because they earned it or deserve it, but because you command it. They need it. And I need to be set free. And so, Father, thank you for the gift of forgiveness, a gift that we receive and a gift that by your grace we can extend. And I want to ask you just to be still for a moment more in this room.